This is Women in PR, a podcast about inspiring women that have embraced PR and made it shine, changing it for the better every day. It's about mentors, founders, researchers, role models, and leaders. I am Anna Adi. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcasts.com. We've spoken a lot in this series about internationalization and globalization and how they influence public relations. We spoke about culture and language, about work setups, collaboration and research. And we often found out about the career journeys and educational backgrounds of our guests. And in doing so, we ended up musing about the skills, knowledge and attributes one needs to practice PR and about whether there's any agreement internationally about how to train and recruit for comms. Is there something that unites PR practice globally? And more importantly, is there something that the PR practice as a whole can identify as its ideal professional self? Now, Anne Gregory will help us find some answers to these questions. She's currently Chair of Corporate Communication at the University of Huddersfield in the UK and has formerly chaired the Global Alliance of Public Relations and Communications Management. It is during her tenure there that she directed the seven-continent team in developing the Global Capability Framework for the profession, a framework that we want to talk about today. Now, among many things that Anne has written, there are more than 80 publications, is the CIPR's AI in PR Ethics Guide, AI as in Artificial Intelligence. Anne, it's so wonderful to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me here. So a couple of years ago, you have coordinated a project uh, that ended up being called the Global Capability Framework uh, for for public relations. This is something that you've done uh, on behalf of uh, the Global Alliance, and you've worked with fellow researchers um, around the the world, really. So um, tell me, what is uh, the Global Alliance to start with, and what is the Global Capabilities Framework all about? Okay, so the Global Alliance is the International Confederation of Professional Associations in Public Relations and Communication Management around the world. Um, So the professional associations such as the German Institute, the Chartered Institute of Public Relations in the UK, Public Relations Society of America are all members of the Global Alliance. And they come together as as a grouping because there are certain things that we need to do on behalf of the profession globally. And the Global Capability Framework is exactly one of those things. And the sort of drivers behind it was uh, recognition that we are a global profession now. We've got consultancies that operate across, across the world, multinationals with offices around the world, and of course, international trade globalization means that communication is not constrained within national boundaries, and it hasn't been for a while. And therefore, it was really quite amazing that there was no international benchmark for capability in public relations and communication management across the world. The accountants have got this sorted out, uh, nursing and engineers have got this sorted out, 
but we haven't. And so the Global Alliance said we need to think about this. We need to have really a common vision of what our profession is at its best, something that scopes the profession and something that gives us an understanding that whether you work in China or whether you work in Germany or the UK, there's a recognisable range of activities and imperatives for the profession that gives us a commonality of, of purpose and helps us to speak a common language about the profession. So those were the sort of impetuses, if you like, for generating this capable, this cap, the, sorry, those were the impetuses for generating this global capability framework. So, um, but before you tell us a little bit about the capabilities and what they are, um, I'm very aware that there's a lot of confusion um, around terms. So I've heard uh, talk about capabilities. We also speak about competencies. Um, not to mention, I mean, in English, you have competence and competencies, um, which for any non-native English speaker is a mouthful and, and a whole load of, of confusion. Can you clarify a little bit? What's the difference between competence, competency and, and sort of capability? And what do they have to do with one another? Right. Well, the, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of confusion around these terms. And to make it simple, I would say that there are two main approaches. So the competency approach looks at all those skills, knowledge, abilities, behaviors that comprise a profession. So it takes all the individual building blocks, if you like. So you need skills to be able to do media relations or to be able to write and, and you build the profession a picture of the profession right from the basics. And then you go on to knowledge and you go on to abilities and you build this huge edifice which says this is what describes the profession in terms of the skills, knowledge and proficiencies that you, you have to have. And uh, there are lots and lots of these competency frameworks. And in fact, the Global Alliance did a piece of work to look at all the existing competency frameworks. And we did an aggregation of them. And we ended up with a document of about over 30 pages, these huge lists of skills and knowledge. And this is a very unmanageable way to actually go about describing your profession, because you can imagine it's out of date as soon as you build it. So there's a different approach, and it's called the capability approach. And what the capability approach tries to do is to describe the profession in, in all its richness, its scope and its depth, in a minimum number of statements. And uh, this is happening in other professions. So in engineering, they do this now. I mentioned nursing the nursing profession is, is moving towards this. And what happens with the capability approach is that it, it's about the aspirations. It's what the potential of the profession might be when you describe it at your best. And, and the key thing about capability is that it's context-free. So for let me give you a quick example. So one of our competencies... Sorry, I'll just say okay. that again. <laughs> capabilities. 
So let me give you an example. One of our capabilities is to communicate effectively across a full range of platforms and technologies. Now, depending on where you are around the world, there might be different platforms and technologies that are available to you. But what this statement says is that you need to be absolutely up to date in the context in which you operate. It doesn't say that you have to use Twitter or you have to be on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. It just says you have to be capable in modern platforms of communication. So it's sort of context-free and it's also, it's non-judgmental as well in that it says you have to be the best that you can be within your context. Now, if you live in an African nation, maybe where the infrastructure is not as well developed in some other nations or in Latin America where it's very difficult to receive, you know, broadband, then your context might constrain you. So it says that you've got to be as as good as you possibly can be in the context in which you operate without setting an absolute standard. Uh, and that's one of the problems with capability frameworks is that they're, not, they're often graded. So you have to do this at this level to be regarded as competent, in other words, fully capable in, in the activity that you undertake. And it might be that you can't be this level because the context in which you operate doesn't allow you to be. You don't have access to broadband. So... Um, this, this idea of having a context-free set of statements, which is the capability approach, means that it can be applicable wherever you are across the world. Right, because one of the initial criticisms of, of the competence framework and, and assessment that you've carried out for the Global Alliance was that um, it works for corporations uh, and multinational organizations that, that had structures in, in place, um, most of the time it's hierarchical. But for anything that was outside of, of this uh, growth structure, uh, they, they didn't quite fit. The, this, the, the framework in itself uh, became uh, quite, quite uh, narrow, right? So in, in the sense, if you were in, a, in an NGO or if you were in a startup, um, you, your role as a communicator didn't have either the bandwidth or, or the capacity, in a sense, to cover, you know, to take you from junior to senior to manager to, I don't know, ruler of the world and the universe. Um, so what you're saying is that the capability framework, therefore, looks at what the profession should look like and, and kind of mitigates for, for that, right? So it's your response to your, your previous research. Absolutely right. Um, and this is one of the challenges that we've got. Uh, you're right. We work in small organizations as professionals and large organizations. A director of communications for a huge telecom company in Germany will have a very different job from a, a small or medium-sized enterprise based in Germany. And therefore, you know, the ability of somebody to say, I, I excel in my competence is very difficult if you're working in a small organization. However, if you describe capability as, let's pick another uh, capability, to facilitate relationships and build trust with internal and external stakeholders and communities, I can do that brilliantly in a small enterprise. 
And I can make a judgment about um, what that might be in discussion with the senior leaders of my organization, you know. So it's, again, this ability to take it out of a context which we imagine and the context is usually imagined by professional associations as being large organizations, as you quite rightly state, but actually locate this in the context that people are actually working is crucially important. And that's what makes this capability of approach so flexible and so right across the world for whether you're working in the public sector, private sector, NGOs, whether you're working in Africa, Asia, Europe, Scandinavia, you can calibrate it. And uh, there are no scores out of 10 for this. 10 out of 10 is dictated by the circumstances in which you operate. So, um, but but still, I mean, one, one of the things that could be confusing um, stems exactly from... <laughs> from the fact that this is non-contextual. Um, b- bear with me for, for a second. So um, most of the time, the job description for a communications position is written, ideally, by the HR department uh, together with the comms team, <laughs> ideally. Yeah. Um, and... If you if you look, <laughs> I'm, I'm giggling because uh, uh, one of our students is is actually uh, carrying out a piece of research right now. Uh, uh, her master's thesis looking into into something like this. But if we're looking at how the job descriptions look like, and look at the capabilities framework, uh, n- none of these things are met. It's just such a world of difference between what organizations out there are thinking and asking communicators to do versus what, as a profession, uh, we're saying that a communicator should do. So what's, what's your view on this? How, how do we bridge? How do we bring together these two worlds? Uh, and what's a piece of advice to, to those who recruit to say, well, look, pay attention to these things, and thus this is kind of what you should consider when you write those job adverts? Yeah, and again, it's perfectly legitimate for an organization to say, this is the basic capability, but we want you to operate at this level. Absolutely right. Um, I think the, uh, and and it's also absolutely right to combine both approaches. So you can say, we want you to be fully competent across a range of platforms and technologies in communication, and you need to be proficient in you know whatever uh, social media is is uh, is is preferred by that organization so it's not an either or approach i, d- I don't think here anna you know because you might take something that's context free like this but certainly in the context in which you operate there might be certain requirements on on you so you can take these capabilities as broad headings and then mm-hmm. you can add whatever calibration is right for you within your situation. Um, and I, I, really interestingly, we're talking to you in Germany now, and I did some work with a huge German engineering company with one of the teams who was actually based in Spain. And uh, we went through these capabilities with the team as a whole. And there's a really interesting conversation then happened about, well, look, we don't need to be fully 
competent and capable in all these things individually, but as a team, we'll decide who is going to focus on what strengths. And therefore, looking on to succession planning then, they were wanting to use this capability framework to frame job descriptions and future adverts. And they wouldn't expect anybody to fulfill all these capabilities at all. They were going to choose some because the team as a whole would fulfill the full complement of these capabilities. And they were also, under these job descriptions, going to say, and you must be proficient in certain skills and knowledge as well. And that's a great use of this. I would not expect anybody to score not that there are scores, but to be fully proficient in all these capabilities because it's, again, I use that word context. Your context will determine what's required of you. And let me give you a personal example here. I used to work for a bank as a practitioner and uh, our bank had a banking organisation that represented us, uh, the banking sector, to government So I didn't do any lobbying when I was a practicing professional, but I would say that in other areas I was highly skilled, not in lobbying. And that's the reality of the lived lives of practitioners. And that's why this capability framework, I think, is applicable, because you can be massively capable in one area and not capable in in another. And you know what? It doesn't matter because your circumstances will dictate what capabilities you need to focus on. And as you change your jobs, those emphases will change as well. So this, again, is the beauty of having something as flexible as this. So um, you're saying um, capabilities, therefore, are, are for the team, uh, or the department as a whole, and uh, we still need to go back to in in a way or another to the GBOC, right? The um, the the Global Alliance uh, Body of Knowledge uh, Project um, that that can give you an idea of how you fill in those gaps at at the individual level. Um, is, yes, is that? It, it it operates at a number of levels. It operates for individuals. And uh, I don't want to give the wrong impression here because you could say, well, Anne, you're advocating a free-for-all. You know, you choose what you are capable um, at and, and that's supposed to be okay with everybody. Well, of course not. There has to be a negotiation here. There has to be a negotiation with my employer about what they regard as the requirements for capability. There has to be a negotiation with my professional association. If I'm going to be a member of a professional association, they will have some judgment on the basics that are required for you to be called competent or or capable, going back to the confusions in languages. Mm. This is not, you know, me just choosing and saying, that's okay for me, you know, and that's where I'm going to stick. This is, is something that has to be agreed with the organization that you work with and uh, and with others. And uh, this is a global capability framework. And therefore, even beyond your national boundaries, you know, to be fully capable, then there's a whole, there's these 11 capabilities that you would want to look at and say, well, 
is this a capability that applies to me when I'm working in the global context or am I working with other people who are also capable in certain areas and they're more capable than me, so I will focus on these areas. So this is quite a nuanced piece of work here, Anna. I wouldn't want this to be regarded as as, as a trivial piece of work because it's not and it's not a free-for-all. So it applies to the individual, and the way that I'm seeing this being used at the moment is we have a little software tool that allows you to make a judgment about where you think your capabilities are on a sliding scale. So no numbers on this, but, you know, are you more or less capable in uh, in these 11 capabilities? And um, I've seen this used where an individual will do that, and their manager will do this about them. And what it does is it opens up a conversation then, Anna. So I think I'm you know, capable in this area. My manager doesn't. So that then is a development opportunity for me. And I will probably be a member of a team. So my, my manager then takes a, 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 an overview, a perspective of the whole team and says, I need a balanced team. So I do require Anne to work in certain areas. This is what she's really good at. And no, okay, uh, she may need to develop in this capability, but not now, maybe in three years' time, when as part of her overall career trajectory, she will need to build up capability in this area to gain promotion. So there can be a, a really interesting conversation between individuals and their manager. And then I mentioned this uh, huge engineering company uh, based in Germany. And uh, the conversation there was about the capability of the whole team. And this was really interesting because it was about the whole team taking responsibility for their work within the organization and um, and the specialisms that um, some of them might have whether they needed generalists or whether they needed hyper-specialists in certain areas, and they decided that they they needed both. They needed a, a flexible team, uh, and therefore they wanted some rounded practitioners who were essentially, you know, capable in, in everything so that they could support their team members, and then others who were specialising in particular capabilities. So, for example... Um, if, if somebody wanted to specialise in being a trusted advisor to senior managers, you know, there's certain things, there's certain skills and knowledge that you need to develop to, to take on that role. Whereas if somebody wanted to uh, take a much more uh, hands-on approach and be focused on actual communication activities in channels, and that's where they wanted to focus their work, then there will be skills and knowledge that they need to develop over time. So taking this holistic perspective is really important, both for the individual, for teams, for the organisation. Now, I I have a slew of questions coming from here because, um, I mean, what if you don't have a team? What if you you work in in such a small organization or or you're right at the beginning that there is no such team, but comms is still essential? Uh, How are you going to go about it? And you did mention uh, this trusted advisor. So I'd like us to go back to it because you said that if you want to focus on being a trusted advisor, there's something that you can do. There's something that you can focus. 
I really want to know what that is. Mm. <laughs> so let's go back to what if there's no team? How how then do you go about comms uh, and and well, arguably the the capabilities framework within your organization? Yeah, so uh, that's a really great question. So as I mentioned earlier, this capability framework scopes the whole of the profession. And if you're a single practitioner, whether you work for an organization or if you're a freelancer, it's unlikely that you're going to excel in all these. So that's where the choices between you and the organization that you work for uh, come into play. So what's important? And uh, you will decide in discussion with them, having something external like this as a basis to have that discussion, um, that's really uh, important as well. And one of the uses that we find for this capability framework is that people have been using it to go to their managers and say, look, this is the huge scope of our role. Now, if you're a big team, you might be able to take responsibility for all these areas. If you're a single practitioner, it's likely that you will have to focus on a small number of these and uh, be really good at them. And depending on how big the organization are or, or what its particular communication requirements are, you can have that as a discussion in the full knowledge that you're not fulfilling all the activities and roles that this capability framework would suggest that we would have responsibility for. So that comes down to organizational and individual choices. Um, and uh, that's why I, why I say it's not a free-for-all, really. This is a, a negotiation. But you do it in full knowledge that you're probably not fulfilling the whole of the potential for the public relations and communication management function within the organization. So, and it's a bit like in medicine, you know, um, <clears throat> consultants specialize, but they specialize knowing that there are a whole range of medical areas that they're not going to undertake because they choose their specialization. And that's perfectly legitimate. And that will be based both <clears throat> on their individual preferences. You know, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon and the demand for orthopedic surgeons in the country or in a particular hospital. So it's exactly the same discussion that you might have. Um, and I think it's important that we, we understand that. It's, then with, it, it's a discussion based on knowledge rather than a, a manager saying, well, I think all public relations should be responsible for is media relations. Off you go. Well, here's yeah. an external document that says, no, it's about much more than that. Now, what's important for us? Well, that's that's certainly great to hear. Um, and uh, it, it, you know, that the, the, the global capabilities framework is also meant as a, as a discussion starter and, and demystifier in the sense of what the professor should be about. Now, um, before we go to the process and how you got here, because it's uh, quite an extensive um, two years research, uh, international team and, and whatnot, let's answer that question about how do you get to be a trusted advisor? Um, it, in, in my other podcast uh, interviews and, and our guests, uh, many, many of our previous guests have referred to increasingly to this idea that comms um, and the comms practitioner should be a trusted advisor. 
Um, what does that mean? How do you get there? Because, you know, trust is not something that you buy on the market. <laughs> it's not readily available. You don't build it either in the sense that, I mean, I think you should be trustworthy and others decide whether they trust you or not. So, uh, and and particularly in organizations, you know, the bigger they are, the more power comes into play, whether it's hierarchy, whether it's interpersonal relationships, uh, all sorts of things uh, come into the way of the comms person being the trusted advisor. So, so, but you said um, there is something that communicators who have this as a, as a career desire uh, can focus on and, and learn. So what, what is it that we can do? to get to be trusted advisors? I think we could do a whole program on this one. Uh, (laughs) uh, But very briefly, I I think that you you are absolutely right. A trusted advisor is, first of all, somebody who is trustworthy. And a trusted advisor is somebody who is prepared to tell the truth. Speak speak truth to power is the saying in English. Uh, And somebody who is able to understand what's going on in the mind of the person that they are advising. And I think this is a crucial element here. So a trusted advisor is not necessarily somebody who tells a senior manager what to do all the time. They are somebody who helps their thinking processes and is able to get alongside them and do a number of things. And let me just, I'll I'll just introduce one or two things that I think a trusted advisor is a communication specialist might offer somebody. So a senior a senior managers, a chief executive, whether it be for a small or for a big company, is surrounded by people who have a particular perspective on the world. And often that is dictated by the specialism that they have. So often a trusted advisor to a, a, a CEO would be the a director of finance. And they see the world through a resource lens It's about money, it's about how you structure the organization, it's about the bottom line. The operations director will see the world through an operations lens. So are we effective, are we efficient in the processes that we have? Now, a communication advisor, I I believe, has a very different perspective. First of all, they don't have the same functional lens, so they come at this from a neutral stance. And the communication stance really is very similar to the chief executives. Chief executive has to see the world and make decisions in the round. So taking all that advice from the several people who will advise them, they then have to synthesize the perspective of the finance director, the operations director, the HR director, et cetera, et cetera, and come to a rounded decision. Now, a communication person does that all the time. Uh, they have what I call contextual intelligence. So this is an understanding of what is going on in the round and particularly an external perspective. So organizations exist when they are given permission to exist by society and by the stakeholders that engage with them. So what is their perspective? What are their expectations? And because the comms person is in intimate contact with those constituencies who give the organization their license to operate, they're able to give the CEO that external perspective to see the organization as others see it and to see it in the context of 
the web of complexity in which it operates, where society's views on things are constantly shifting and where the pressures on organisations from outside are being nuanced day on day. And we only have to think about the political context in which we operate to know how true that is. Now, somebody was able to sit alongside a chief executive and say, this is how the world sees us. This is how the world sees our future. This is how the world sees how we should respond in these situations is an incredibly important asset. Because what a chief executive wants is for their organization to be sustainable. And by that, I don't just mean environmentally sustainable. I mean to have long life. And to have long life, you have to secure the support of those individuals and groups on whom you are dependent. And that might be employees, increasingly it's employees, and who's best connected to employees and can advise the chief executive about what employee morale is like and what their expectations of the organization are, the communication person. Who is well connected with those groups and individuals and important constituencies outside the organization who have expectations of the organization, the communication person? Who can who can advise the chief executive about what's going on outside and bring that intelligence in? And who can advise the chief executive about the decisions that he or she will make and how they will be accepted by those important constituencies that I've mentioned? It's the communication person. And I can't think of a more important role, particularly in the current environment that, that we live, that trusted advisor perspective given by a communications person. And a communication person, apart from having that sort of contextual intelligence, uh, has as a communicative intelligence as well, which means that, you know, it's not just the decisions that you make, it's how you communicate them that is crucially important. And uh, we know about, you know, the importance of empathy. We know about the importance of resonance with those constituencies on whom you are dependent. Who is going to advise you on that? It's not going to be the accountant. It's not going to be the operations person. It's the communication person who understands those sorts of things. So without going into the detail of, you know, communication advice, those perspectives, I think, that are crucially important for senior managers, whether they're in small organizations or big organizations, are crucially important and that only the communication person can give. So, but, but you see, as, as you were giving these examples, in the back of my mind, there was, you know, one commentary going on, and that is that if, if the person, <laughs> the comms person is being accepted. Um, and again, from various interviews, and there's also um, quite some literature coming up right now, reconsidering the role of the communications function and the role of the communicator in, in an organization, there seems to be a um, an increasing requirement coming both from academics and professionals alike that comms shouldn't stay within the remit of the comms department alone, um, but rather that knowledge, understanding and, and training to, to a fair degree into 
good, effective, impactful communications should go beyond the comms function. Um, so going back to maybe your German uh, example, you know, this German company with, with its uh, office in Spain, that their CEOs and their engineers should get courses <laughs> and what is uh, effective comms and, and sort of make the difference between psychology, interpersonal communication, mass communication, uh, persuasive communication so that we can kind of start to appreciate uh, where the communicator can help rather than just think that they will solve all the problems. And once that is being understood and internalized, uh, then comms has an easier job, obviously, becoming uh, a trusted advisor. Now, th- that kind of has to do a little bit with the future of the profession and how do we get to fulfilling the the capability framework's mandate, uh, in, in a sense, right? Because you include, the capabilities framework includes communication capabilities, which are about aligning strategies with organizational purpose and values, identifying communication problems proactively. So there's research there in in a sense included, um, evaluation uh, as well. And then we have organizational and professional capabilities. And, And if we go to these professional capabilities where, you know, the valued counsel and trusted advisor fits in, arguably as a professional, you can't fit that, fulfill that successfully unless others let you do it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, 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 where do we go from from here? How do we make comms? <laughs> Are we going back to the beginning? How do we make comms as a profession legit in the eyes of the others? Because for us, obviously, we're here. We talk about it. We do research. So for us, is legit. But how do we make it legit and credible and and legitimate and worthy for others? Yeah, I think there's a huge lot of stuff to unpack in, in what you've just said there, Anna. Um, <laughs> back to the- I don't make it easy on yeah, you. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> we should talk all day. Um, I, I think there is so- just going back to the trusted advisor role, <clears throat> we find that the best trusted advisors very rarely talk about communication tactics. You know, they talk about securing the legitimacy of the organization. They talk about protecting the reputation of the organization because um, senior people are about to make decisions that are not going to be supported. So that's, that's not all that much to do with communication per se, although the communication will then, uh, sorry, the communication professional will then have to go out and communicate those decisions very often and, uh, and that's a whole other job but one of the problems and we know that it's been a problem for generations now is that the communications profession as a whole has remained very siloed into doing communications most people within Our profession do not have MBAs. They're not taught in business schools. And that's where most senior managers uh, have actually spent their educational lives. So we have to think in terms of how do chief executives and senior people think? So we have to learn their language. We have to learn the sort of sequence of, uh, of decision-making steps that they go through. We have to learn what's important to them. And the bottom line for us is we have to attach ourselves to their agenda. 
for years now, I've had, you know, people asking me, communication professionals, but why do, you know, I want, I talk, talk to them about communication and the importance of communications. <clears throat> and they don't accept me. And so, well, let's just flip this round. How much of their agenda do you understand? How much of their, how many of their priorities do you know about? Do you understand the pressures that these people are under? Do you understand that they've got a board above them who are asking questions in these areas? And how does communication actually contribute and solve some of the pressure issues that those senior people are struggling under? And how do you actually address those issues that they think are important rather than expecting them to think about communication? Because otherwise, we're just, we're just adding to their to-do list. And it's really, it's a really interesting exercise to actually think about senior people in the organisation and say, well, what is it that preoccupies them? What keeps them awake at night? What are the issues that they are struggling with? And how can communication help with them? And it's probably not to trivialise this by, re- by writing a press release. This is about engaging with them on the key issues that face the future of the organization. What intelligence can we bring in that helps them with those issues? And that's the heart of the trusted advisor for me. It's not going to them with a com solution necessarily. It's about going through with them and working alongside them. This is a trusted advisor role, not a trusted decision maker role where you actually understand and unpack for them what some of the tangled issues are, bring in that intelligence that I talked about, your knowledge of the wider world, knowledge of the internal organisation, because you are connected to helping them work through some of those issues. And that, for me, is the essence of the trusted advisor role. And a route to doing that is often because you demonstrate competence in what you're doing. So as as a junior practitioner or maybe in a small organization, you're going to be red hot at doing the communication stuff. And that's almost your entry ticket. Just again, to take a, 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 a parallel, you know, as an accountant, as a junior accountant, you will go in and you'll be an auditor, you'll be a junior auditor, and you add up the columns. Now, when I, I've, I've sat on a number of boards, and the finance director never talked about adding up the columns. <laughs> no? So if we want to be a trusted advisor, we've got to stop talking about the equivalent of adding up the columns. What that uh, finance director says about, well, these are the um, these are the pressures, these are financial pressures and imperatives that we need to consider as a board. These are the areas where we can, you know, secure, if you like, sources of finance. These are threats to our sources of finance. This is where the business is hemorrhaging. And it was never columns. So um, I think that the shift in the profession, therefore, is exactly what you say. And, and, and we're our own worst enemy, I think, because we hang on to the columns. We say, <laughs> no, you can't do communication activities because it's so important that only we can do it. Well, again, we have to get out of that mentality. There used to be a time, you know, 
senior manager in 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 the university myself, and um, and have been you know very senior manager, less senior now because of my choice. But <laughs> there used to be a time we were talking about HR before when HR sat in, in all the interviews. They wrote all the job descriptions and they ran the process of recruitment. They don't do that now. They don't do disciplining of staff. We might go to them to uh, advise for advice about the law, HR law, but managers take responsibility for HR. Same with budgeting. You know, there used to be an accountant, an internal accountant sat next to me when I put budgets together for, for my department. That doesn't happen now. You are responsible for budgets. And what you said about equipping individuals within the organization to have competence in communication is absolutely right. And what's the result of that? Two things. First of all, it releases so much time so that practitioners who are specialists in communication can do these roles like being a trusted counsel and and, uh, thinking about the things that are going to be impacting on the organisation because they've got time to do that instead of rushing around doing communication stuff. But it also means that communication then can be embedded within the organisation and you've got a whole set of individuals and departments who can offer you resource and intelligence. And I don't know why we haven't gone down this route years ago, but as a profession, we've been so insecure that unless we're doing the communication minutiae, we feel that, you know, we're not going to be respected. We need to get rid of that. Of course, we need to monitor it. And of course, we need to set standards for it. And of course, we need to be available when people have got difficult communication problems. But bring it on as far as I'm concerned. Let's get people properly equipped. And then, just like in loads of other functions, we've got a range of people who are competent at doing communication. Wouldn't that solve a lot of our problems? Because many of our problems are generated by other people's communication mistakes. Well, that's uh, that's a lot. Now we uh, we're slowly coming to an end of our conversation today. The official conversation hours, I'm sure, is going to continue way more um, beyond the official time. And I hope everybody else will check out the Global Alliance, the, the GBOC, and the uh, the Capability Framework, and and have a think uh, think of that. But. Um, Tell me a little bit, because we, we've been dancing around this idea since the beginning. How is this research set up? Um, you you were at the University of the Huddles, uh, Huddlesfield at, at the time. It took about two years, if, if I remember right. Um, how do you come up to a capabilities framework that uh, that speaks to, to the world? How did you go about uh, setting the research up, selecting your, uh, your uh, research partners, in, in a way that uh, it gave you as a as a coordinator of, of the team and therefore everybody else who's reading the results of the project, the confidence uh, that this is something that they can uh, consider and potentially embrace. Yes, yeah, so it, it was a long project and a complex project. And I would just like to give a shout out to my colleague, Dr. Joanna Fawkes, who, um, who was the principal investigator on, on the project. I was the director of the project. Uh, but I, uh, but uh, Joanna worked uh, full time on this project and was absolutely brilliant. So the way that we approached it was, uh, first of all, we did some 
work on what sort of framework we should put together, uh, Anna. And uh, we decided on the capability approach. So this is an approach that comes from development economics, actually. And um, um, Amarathi Sen is the big academic on this, um, uh, clearly from Asian origin, which is interesting in itself because a lot of the competency frameworks come from the West. Um, so this capability framework um, was generated in a non-Western country, the sort of philosophy behind it, uh, and the work of, uh, of Sen and uh, Martin Nussbaum in development economics has been adopted by a lot of forward-thinking professions now as saying, well, look, we need something that's going to be applicable across the world. Uh, and the idea is that uh, capability looks at potential and what a, a profession can be at its best. So what we did was to look around the world and say, well, look, um, one of the issues around GBOC, um, and again, uh, my colleague Jean Valin, who led that work, did an absolutely fantastic job of bringing together all those knowledge, skills, attributes and behavior frameworks. But a lot of them originate in the West. Um, and I, I mentioned the issues of difficulty of updating them. Um, so what we wanted to do was to try and get something that was truly global in perspective. So we decided that we would work with uh, academics uh, based in um, six continents around the world, uh, representing every major block. So uh, in Latin America, um, my current colleague, uh, Professor Gabriel Sardi, led the research uh, from Argentina. In, uh, in Asia, my colleague, uh, Gregor, Professor Gregor Huff, um, who's based in Singapore, but who worked all around Asia, led the work there. Uh, we had uh, representatives from Australia, Spain, in, in uh, Europe, because Europe is not all one block, as we know. So Southern Europe, ourselves in, in Northern Europe, Scandinavia, um, United States, uh, Canada. So every, every continent, every inhabited continent represented and, and Africa as well, of course. And what our colleagues did was they worked together with the professional associations and with other practitioner groups, employers, for example, and academics on designing for their country a country framework. Uh, the advantage of the particular group of individuals that we got together was that all of them have got experience of working and uh, deep knowledge of other countries. So, for example, our researcher in the USA was Professor Katerina, Katerina Tetsura, who's uh, based at the University of Oklahoma. You can probably tell from her name that she doesn't uh, come from America. She's actually Russian, and she has deep knowledge of um, communication in Russia and Eastern Europe, which was invaluable. Australia, Dr. Marianne Sison, who is based at RMIT, is, is, is a Filipino by birth, and she knows Southeast Asia incredibly well. So um, all the researchers have experience of practice and academic thinking around the world. So what we did was we uh, consulted experts within each country that uh, these academics were located in, and uh, we did a huge survey of practitioners. We ran, we ran surveys with uh, academics and employers. We ran focus groups, and that's why it took two years, um, where we... Uh, 
gained a deep understanding of uh, the capabilities within each country. Then we um, all gathered together as a research group in London and we spent two, two days going through the country frameworks, actually coming to conclusions about what the global community would uh, accept as being relevant to them. That mean, meant, for example, that some of the UK capabilities that we'd come across were not actually present in the global capability framework because around the world the, the, the practice is different. So this wasn't just an aggregation of the country capability studies. We actually deconstructed them thoroughly and we drew together these 11 capabilities on a common understanding of what would be applicable around the world. And we tested that framework then in different countries and with the Global Alliance itself, the board of the Global Alliance, as I mentioned, has representatives of association from around the world on it. So this was a really rigorous process. And we came up with the 11 capabilities which are now represented in the framework. And they're grouped, as you said, into three categories. Those are that are specific to communication. We thought about the organizational contribution. And then we thought about professional capabilities. And these are capabilities that would... Uh, that would be acceptable to most professions. I can think in, in medicine and accounting, um, for example, being a trusted advisor would be a, a, a capability that they would own. Um, working within an ethical framework would be something they would accept. And developing themselves and others, being constantly up to date, is a mark of being a professional. So uh, that's how the process took place. Um, it was tested and monitored. It's been peer-reviewed uh, through conferences and papers, so we know that it was a rigorous process. And the fact that it's been adopted around the world and that other countries are actually undertaking their own studies based on our research methodology indicates that it has a rigour about it and a level of acceptability, which uh, we're, we're proud of and um, we feel is a service to the global community. So what's, what's next? The capability framework is out, uh, research continues. What do you think should be next and what is next for, for you in terms of research? So this is not something that should be static. As you say, it came out in mid-2018 and this is something that should be um, constantly updated because it doesn't have all these huge number of building blocks of skills and knowledge, it can be updated. And we've at the moment, we've got some more country studies happening. So, for example, in Indonesia, there's a study happening, Turkey, uh, Malaysia, Qatar, UAE. So a number of countries in Latin America, Ecuador um, and uh, Peru are doing studies. So around the, the world, we've got more studies happening. And so we want to refresh the capability framework to make sure that it is reflective of both broad practice across the world and current practice. The actual headings, Anna, are, are relatively timeless. So, you know, to communicate effectively across a full range of platforms and technologies. I can't imagine that that will change massively but it may be that some of the sub-capabilities, and each capability has three or four sub-capabilities, 
require additional nuance. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, we've got um, new things happening in the pro- profession, as you say, uh, more and more emphasis on this trusted counsellor role. It may be that we would want to uh, flesh this out more extensively and give a, a, a rounder picture of what that might mean through the sub-capabilities. So what's next is constant modulation, moderation, nuance of the framework, throwing it out altogether, if that's appropriate, although that would uh, surprise me. But this is something that has to remain live, has to be dynamic and has to represent the potential of the profession as it moves forward and develops. So like all research in our time, uh, the end is not here. (laughs) No, no. Just to start the place. Exactly. Well, Anne, thank you so, so very much. We've covered quite a lot of ground in this hour. Um, I just go back to saying uh, what you've said at the beginning of our conversation, and that is that the capabilities framework is there to to help everybody else think of the profession of how it would be at its best. And, and so this is what we're operating with, with uh, with a minimum of statements of, of des- desirable traits uh, of, of the profession. So as I said, with, with that in mind, um, do check all the materials out there. It's, it's a fascinating and valuable reading. And thank you very, very much. And I'm sure that you and I will definitely hear of each other uh, soon enough. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, Thank you to everybody who's listening to the podcast. Please go and uh, look at the framework and give us your feedback because this is a living thing. Now remember, 11 capabilities towards an understanding of PR applicable around the world. If you haven't heard of the Global Alliance Capability Framework and all the research underpinning it, do check it out now. It's essential reading. Next week is our final stop in the series, and we return to Germany to chat with Katja Bott from Mercedes-Benz Cars and Vans Global Communications to speak about digital car reveals and PRs evolving to an integrated and integrative function. See you next week. Women in PR is brought to you by Quadriga University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and professionalpodcast.com. To learn more about the show and my guests, do check out the show notes. If you liked the show, do share it. If you have comments and suggestions, find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I am Anna Adi. Thank you for listening.